0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we are recording live from Banjo, Colorado. Population growing. Welcome to episode four of the Live from Banjo podcast. It's one of those things where it feels like yesterday that we started, and another piece of me feels like I can't remember life prior. We had a lot of new listeners last week, and some of you that have been around since week one, so thanks for listening and spreading the word. Holy smokes, what an episode we have for you this week. Our guest this week, Clay Rose, is the singer, frontman, and rhythm guitar player for the alt-country Boulder, Colorado-based Gasoline Lollipops. Clay's life has been tumultuous at best, and there are a number of connections in our past that we discussed this week. Though Clay and I are both sober now, that has not always been the case, and we discussed some of our previous life experiences with addiction, sobriety, relapse, and childhood trauma. I do want to forewarn the listeners that there is some very heavy subject matter discussed in this episode and could be triggering for those that have dealt with addiction and their own traumas. That said, both Clay and I seem to have an upbeat way of looking at some of the darkest moments and I can only speak for myself, but it has been a long road to now. Though Clay has had a bumpy road, he has been a prolific songwriter and musician for many years. He has two solo albums, two albums with his previous band, The Widow's Bane, and the Gasoline Lollipops recently released their fifth studio album, All the Misery Money Can Buy, which is available for purchase on the Gas Pops website. There's a link in the bio, or you can go to gasolinelollipops.com, or you can find it on all streaming platforms. If you haven't heard the Gasoline Lollipops, I'm kind of jealous because you had to take a ride. And I would recommend that you start at the beginning, because as we discussed in the interview, these albums really reflect Calais's life and the ebb and flow is pretty visceral in the listening experience. So thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. And please follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to be a sponsor, please contact me at livefrombanjo.com, email me at Marcus at marcusatlivefrombanjo.com, or DM, and follow me on Instagram at Live From Banjo Podcast. If you like the show, please leave a review. And if you have any critiques, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Please stick around after the interview to hear Crystal and I's discussion on Columbine, childhood trauma, suicidal tendencies, whirling dervishes, and more. As I said, Clay and I tackle some serious subjects throughout, and Crystal and I's discussion isn't all sunshine and rainbows either, but that's life, and we speak about lives and the things that have affected who we are. Clay's honesty and vulnerability is special, so I hope you appreciate his story. Okay, please continue to email me at at marxlivefrombanjo.com and let me know what you think. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening, and now please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Clay Rose. Hey Clay, thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: How's it been going recently? You guys have good holidays?
1: Yeah, I mean, as good as can be expected, you know. Yeah. I kind of like uh, COVID in the sense that everything's fucked, but none of it's my fault, you know. whereas yeah. as in normal life, it was usually fucked and it was usually my fault. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice to have a valid scapegoat for everything that goes wrong.
0: Yeah. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. You're uh, you're sober now. Yeah. Yeah. I just got sober like 10 months ago. Oh, sweet. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Literally, I went to work one day and came home and that was the last day I ever went to work. And that was also the day I decided that I had to not kill myself. <laughs> and uh,
1: That's a really good day to get sober because everybody from that day on has had a valid excuse to just be blindly drunk 24-7. And, and people who are already on a downward spiral, I think, you know, really dangerous.
0: The irony or whatever you want to call it, it was it was pretty incredible that I, I made this commitment. and Now I've stuck with it. So, so good. Awesome. And as a result, we're here. So you re- recently did a live stream at the Gold Hill Inn. How was that?
1: It's so weird, you know, be, being in this room that you're so used to looking at packed, and so used to these rowdy shows it's like it's my favorite place to play in the world, but you feel, you feel like a ghost, like you've died and you've come back to haunt this place after hours. It's just so strange.
0: Like with the, uh, with the setup, are there many employees there or video or anything? Or how is it?
1: The owner came down and unlocked the door for us. And then he went home <laughs> and he started a fire in the fireplace. And then he went home. Oh, that was nice. He said, well, I'll be watching from my living room. And that's it. We had two people there running video and sound for us. But yeah, it's an empty room.
0: Yeah. How, how do you feel about coming into twenty twenty one now feel like there's gonna be some more opportunities later in the year
1: There might be, but honestly i feel um I feel kind of sheepish and like traumatized you know what I mean and I've also become acclimated to this very private quiet way i mean yeah of course there's a part of me that like i said really misses big rowdy sold out shows, but I would have a really tough time if tonight I had one of those gigs on the books, you know, if if tonight I'm supposed to go play a sold out theater, I would feel scared about it. (laughs) You know,
0: is that because just having to put that vulnerability back out on stage or, or where do you think that fear comes from? What's driving that fear?
1: I think it's like, so imagine that you've been shipwrecked on an Island for 10 months and all of a sudden, this cruise ship passes by. You've been like Tom Hanks talking to your volleyball for nine months, right? Eating caterpillars and drinking dew off of leaves. And then all of a sudden, there's this cruise ship full of people, and they pull you up on board. And it's the first time you've seen humans in 10 months. And you're so kind of emaciated and hungry and starved. And all you want to do is fall into their arms. And cry like a baby and they say oh you're a musician and they shove you up on stage and give you a guitar it's like why don't you play us a show that's what it would feel like you know
0: all right i like that <laughs> description okay so we'll go a little bit backwards you were you were born in lafayette colorado right
1: yep i was just uh having coffee with a friend three blocks from where i was born this morning
0: wow at what age did you uh you move out to Tennessee?
1: So my mom and dad separated really quickly after I was born. They were never married or anything. My mom, she was from Texas and there she had connections to Willie Nelson. And uh, a couple years before I was born, Willie Nelson cut one of her songs and it did really well. And um, so she was always kind of like, I got to get to Nashville. I got to get to Nashville. And after I was born and her and my dad weren't getting along, she decided to follow her dream of being a songwriter in Nashville. And she left and went there. And my dad moved up into the mountains here in Colorado. And so really quickly, I started going back and forth between Nashville and Colorado. And that's pretty much how my whole childhood was.
0: That was similar to mine. My, my dad had moved overseas and we, we moved to Atlanta. And then uh, dad moved back to the States, but he was in Texas. So I would do like the holidays and like summers with him and then school year with mom is that kind of that kind of setup
1: yeah and sometimes we'd switch back and forth sometimes i do the year here and the summer there and then sometimes i do the year there and the summer here
0: so then when you moved to nashville was your mom working as a songwriter or
1: uh no she didn't make it too long i mean she tried but she was also an alcoholic and a drug addict yeah and um, it was hard for her to keep her focus or her money, right? When she did make money off the songs, it disappeared real quickly. And then she was forced to, to do work. So she was working as a house cleaner and moonlighting as a songwriter and a performer. And then she eventually landed a good full-time gig at a hospital. And that just took all of her time. So that was pretty much the end of her songwriting until she retired and her and I started co-writing together again so i i kind of pulled her out of retirement and now she's writing again
0: oh very cool have you guys cut any of the songs that you guys have done together
1: yeah actually uh i think there was two or three songs that she wrote a good part of the lyrics on our on the gas in Lollipop's last album
0: very cool that's that's awesome you were in tennessee during high school in franklin
1: yeah franklin high
0: and uh it's it sounded nice and dixie pretty redneck i I was in Atlanta, and mine didn't sound quite as rough as yours. I was a punk rock kid as well. You and I had talked one time at a show at Mishawaka. We had talked about our punk rock background. So when you were walking around with a mohawk, sounds like you got into some fights, and from the school's point of view, you were causing them. From your point of view, you were defending yourself?
1: Yeah, I, I was always the one at the bottom of the dog pile when they broke up the fight. I was the common denominator of most of the fights that were taking place in the school. So I, you know, on paper, I was the instigator and I definitely had the worst record of anybody in the school, but that's because I was getting jumped two or three times a day, you know? And it was, I mean, at the end, towards the end, I got bitter pretty quickly Sure. and I stopped being afraid of getting beaten up pretty quickly too. And so a smart kid, if he was called names walking down the hallway, would just keep his head down and keep walking. And I wasn't that way. Right. And then pretty soon I may have been the one calling names.
0: <laughs> it's it's hard to remember that far back in your life. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So as a result, your principal tells you that you need to see a psychologist or or something. Is that like an on-hand physician or was that outside of the school or what was that like?
1: What they did is that they contacted my parents and said, um, if he's going to stay enrolled here, he needs to see a psychologist and be evaluated. Right. And I was, I mean, the evaluation to me, it was pretty simple. They just asked me, why I got into so many fights at school. And I said, they don't like my haircut. And they said, So why don't you cut your hair? And I said, because I shouldn't fucking have to. Fuck them. Like <laughs> they should get used to it. You know what I mean? Yep. And and so from that they deduced that I had severe homicidal and suicidal tendencies. That's mm. what yeah. they said. And then I was admitted into Vanderbilt's children's psychiatric ward. And once I was in there, the parents had to sign off in order to have me put in there, which my mom did. But very quickly, she realized that that was not a good place for me after she visited me a couple of times in there and saw what it was really like. And at that point, she was powerless to get me out because I was a ward of the state, which nobody seemed to be aware of at the time that I was admitted. And so then I ended up staying in there uh, just about 3 months. Mm. And from what I understand, I was I got out in record time because a lot of those kids are in there 6, 9, 12 months. God.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is about being punk rock and people assuming that you're suicidal or homicidal when you're like, when something goes wrong. But I remember I got in a, like a little fender bender one time and uh, hit the back of this lady's car and it didn't do any damage, but she still wanted a police report. So we went to the police station because the police were like, there's no damage. I'm not, we're not driving there. You come here. And, uh, and she was on the phone with her and she goes, he looks like one of those suicidals.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and I, I like, wonder if she like if she knew the band's suicidal tendencies and that's what she preferred, Yeah,
0: that's what I was like. Oh man, is she kind of hip to suicidal tendencies? Well, oh, that's more like SoCal
1: style. You know, I don't have the bandana, but it's all right. It's a good band.
0: Whatever. But um <laughs> so you were in the hospital. Your roommate would try to eat himself. Can you? Can you elaborate on that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can. (laughs) So this kid, well, I got to know him pretty well later. The first night I was in there, he tried to kill me with my own steel-toed combat boot because my combat boots were sitting in the corner of the room. And they put me in the room with him. And I was laying there facing the wall, pretending to be asleep. And I heard him get up out of bed. And out of the corner of my eye, I see him go over and he picks up my combat boot and he puts his hand in it, you know, using the steel toe as like a hammer. And he comes up and stands right in front of me and he lifts it up over his head. And he's about to like cave my skull in. And I reach out and grab him by the crotch and I crush. And then I pick him up because he was smaller than me. And I pick him up over my shoulders like this. And I walk out of the hallway and I throw him down into the hall. And I start screaming while I'm kicking him. And I'm like, everybody get out here right now. I was like, this is what happens when you fuck with me. And then they grabbed me and they threw me in, you know, five points and they kept me there all night. And then I got to know the kid later on and came to find out that he would do anything. He was addicted to benzos, right? Mm -hmm. And he would do anything to get his fix. And the way that you get benzos is by getting put in five points, right? Sure. So it wasn't about him hating me or having a dislike for my head. It's just that he knew that that would get him his fix. And so another one of his tricks is because he kept all sharp objects away from this guy. So one of his fixes, he would just take bites out of his arms and that would get him put in five points and he would do anything. And the, the day that I left I remember him very clearly. He was sitting in this chair waiting to go to the ER and he was so excited because they were going to put him under and he was going to get pain meds. And what he had done is he pulled the staple from the middle of a People magazine that he'd gotten hold of somehow. And he unfolded the staple lengthwise and he inserted it into his arm and just left it there. I didn't tell anybody about it and waited for it to get infected. And then gangrene started setting in before anybody noticed. And he was on the way to the hospital to get surgery and he was just stoked. But that kid, he was at the time he was 13 years old and he had no memory of ever not being institutionalized. He was like a doorstep baby in Florida and he got put into foster care and very early on he got put into a mental institution at like the age of three and states can only hold a child for x amount of months right i think it's like 18 or 24 months and then at that point their term is expired and you have to send them to the next state over Mm -hmm. so he had started in florida and he had been through the system in florida alabama georgia mississippi Uh, South Carolina and now he was in Tennessee and on his 18th birthday had to let him out so he had like five more years of just being moved from state to state in these crazy terrible conditions it was like a very very depressing story but unfortunately he's not a rarity there's a lot of kids just stuck in the system like that
2: yeah I
0: think that That happens to a lot of people. And then that institutionalization in youth, you know, especially happens with African-American youth and then they get stuck in the system and it's just a, it's a terrible cycle.
1: And it's a huge money-making thing, right? Because like all those state-run institutions, they get their money based on how many inmates they have. Right. And they say that each inmate is worth X amount of dollars. And then they actually use what, 60% of that budget for that and then all the rest is just funneled off and a bunch of corruption. Hopefully we're moving away from some of that. But yeah, I mean it was interesting too when I was in there, uh, you know, and they're they're pumping you full of pills yeah. all the time from the time you get in there. So they're feeding me pills three or four times a day. I don't even know what they're feeding me, you know, but I'm on like five different medications in there. And that's where I really learned how to be a drug addict. You know, like I wasn't, I was maybe smoking a little pot before that and, you know, you know, watering down my mom's whiskey or whatever, but I certainly was not a drug addict until I went into that place. And that's where you learn to like half swallow your pills and then regurgitate them and hide them under your mattress in your room until you get enough to get high and then you crush them up and snort them, that kind of stuff. And then when I was in there, all messed up on drugs. And watching how the system worked and watching how these kids were neglected and lost in the system and how the whole thing was a money making machine I started getting really resentful, really angry. And I would have these fantasies. This was pre Columbine. Right. So there hadn't been like mass school shootings yet. This is like 94, 95
0: So you were like 14, 15? Yeah. Okay. We're about the same age, I think.
1: And I was fantasizing. When I get out of this place, I'm coming back and I'm coming back with machine guns and I'm going to mow down all these motherfuckers and I'm going to save all these kids, right?
0: So you did become homicidal eventually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. By the time I left, I was homicidal. But luckily, once I got out, some semblance of sanity returned. And I was just like, I just got to get as far away from this place as possible. But... My point is that when Columbine happened, everybody was so shocked, like, oh, my God, how could this possibly happen? And I don't know that those kids were ever institutionalized, but I do know that they were mentally in need of help. And I do know that they were on a lot of psychiatric meds. And once you start going into that world and just getting medicated and being capitalized on and churned in and churned out, there's this deep sense of abandonment from our society like our society has abandoned me they don't give a shit about me sure and i'm locked sure. up and forgotten it was not a surprise to me at all when columbine happened and i think that that's something that's continued and gotten worse and worse and so have the school shootings and nobody wants to talk about it because pharmaceuticals is probably the biggest cash cow in america yeah. especially as oil starts to depreciate
0: sure So you started writing poetry while you were in the Vanderbilt children's psych, or were you writing poetry before then?
1: Yes. I'd started a little bit before then. Okay. So I'd been writing for a couple of years and it had already become definitely a passion of mine. But in there, I learned to write without a pen and paper because everything can be used against you. And it was, and I I was foolish enough to write for the first time week that i was in there and my shit got confiscated and psychoanalyzed and i got penalized and pumped full of pills because of it you know so since then yeah since then it's become a habit of mine to write all my songs just in my head
0: you hit them where nobody could find them
1: yeah and i don't i don't ever write anything down until it's totally finished Then I'll write out the full thing. Also, I have this weird sort of an OCD thing about once the word is on the paper, it can't be changed. Oh. Yeah. So if I was to write early on in the process, I I wouldn't write very good songs because I would have to be... I'd be forced to stick with the first draft, you know. Whereas when it's in my head, I can chew on it and change it for months or years even before I write it down.
0: That's interesting. And then I just wonder with, you know, having years with addiction and alcohol issues and remembering songs and things because there's so many times where I've written music late at night and I, I wrote hits. I mean, and then you wake up the next day and you don't even know you played it. And every once in a while, you'd like, what is this recording on my phone? And you'd find something (laughs) that you'd like.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, it's tragic how many songs have been lost. I'd I'd say probably 90% of all the songs I started writing were forgotten or never finished. So
0: your sister eventually... Visiting you and she gave you some kind of sage advice or play the game, basically.
1: Yeah. She had been institutionalized multiple times uh, before then. And she, she was really smart. And that's why I got out in record time. Is Because she taught me how to manipulate and lie to the psychiatrist. <laughs> She's like, that psychiatrist is your key. That's the only person that can get you out of here. So you have to convince him, first of all, that there's something wrong with you. And then you have to convince them, second of all, that in a realistic time frame, that you're recovering from said problem and you're getting better. And then third of all, you got to show gratitude. And this whole thing at the end, it's got to cultivate in this gracious, oh, thank you for saving me from myself, doctor. This
0: is, this is the very one flew over the cuckoo's nest.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he didn't get out. But right? he didn't he get out. Long
0: no, long. no. it was it, That was the tragic ending. You have the happy ending version at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, I could really relate to his character because he, his Achilles heel was his allegiance to kind of the idealistic justice, right? Like he shouldn't have to be fucking locked up, you know, and he couldn't let that go. He couldn't swallow that down and keep it hidden long enough to get out. It always came out of him. That pushback against the system. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm not bowing down. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with you. And he couldn't ever be quiet about that long enough to get out. And I was sort of cut from the same fabric as that guy. That's what got me in there in the first place, right? Like, that's why I didn't cut my mohawk and stuck getting my ass kicked. Uh, but once I got in there, that was scary shit. And especially rooming with that kid who had been in there his entire life. And especially with my mom and my dad... In Colorado, both trying to get me out and talking to lawyers and the lawyers saying like, you guys don't have a leg to stand on. He's a ward of the state. That scared the shit out of me. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll play whatever game you need me to. I'll say yes, yes, sir. And no, sir. And whatever you need me to say.
0: Did you then kind of carry that through to like the widow's bane and, and putting on like an alter ego in any way?
1: Well, it actually started before that when I was in high school getting my ass kicked because... If anything ever prevented me from getting my ass kicked once I was surrounded by good old boys, the only thing that did was acting. And I learned to act crazy, which is what got me put in there, right? So it's sort of backfired on me. But if I acted crazy enough, like I would say to them, Yeah, you guys got me surrounded and you're all bigger than me and you are most likely going to kick my ass, but one of you is gonna lose an eye. Yeah you know and i and I grew my fingernails out and i sharpened them to points and they were painted black and i put on like multiple layers of top coat to make them really thick and i'd hold my hands up like that and i'd say one of you motherfuckers losing an eye and then most of the time if i was like convincing in my acting they go oh, okay let's leave the crazy guy alone so i learned that that trick early on. And long before I ever wanted to be a musician, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a comedian specifically.
0: Okay. Me too.
1: Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. I uh I found my way. I I'm about six feet now. You're pretty tall though. You've towered over me, I think a bit. How tall are you? Six four. Yeah. And uh I was short. Like I, I didn't I didn't I was late puberty. So I was five foot four until I was 17 and my voice was high, but I learned my freshman year of high school that I could joke with the football players and get them to kind of be like, okay, you're funny and you're harmless. So you're okay. And that was, that was how I survived high school. Cause I remember yeah. almost getting my ass beat my freshman year by a football player. And somehow I I used comedy to kind of change his mind about me. And then after that, I was yeah,
1: self self deprecating comedy.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I'm still self deprecating and, and still super insecure as a result, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah. With the gangster kids that works for me and Franklin high, if I was self deprecating and like act the fool, then the gangster kids thought it was funny and they'd leave me alone. But if I did that with the good old boys, it's like they were so insecure themselves. They'd be like, "What oh, are you fucking faggot? You know, and they like they get really offended because I, I guess because they could like, wait, this is a white man acting like whatever, Then I'm a white man. What's that say about me? I don't know. But the gangsters just thought it was cr- hilarious. They're like, "Oh, a fucking crazy white boy," and they leave me alone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Growing up was always fun. Um, yeah, I found it like I got (laughs) to, I lie. Um, yeah, I was, I, I was molested when I was like really, really young. And so I got into drugs.
1: Were you? And I,
0: I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Yeah. And so I got into drugs and alcohol, like super young. Like I, I mean, I started doing drugs on occasion when I was like nine.
1: Yeah. Yep. Same with me. Yeah.
0: And so then I found that source, which you know, worked really well as a mechanism of coping. And I've now I've learned that that's okay. You know, it was probably a good thing for me to find, but
1: uh, yeah, it kept us alive all those years through all that shit.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, then I quit the drugs and then the alcohol kind of slowly crept up and then eventually um, got to that point where I couldn't do that
1: anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And now without drugs and alcohol, all that's left to do for me now is like, fucking deal with it you know with all all those years of compounded interest you know and now it's like there's no buffers on
0: and i don't i don't know how to handle it exactly i'm learning you know i'm a baby you know i'm like you know just under 10 months into it and it's like i'm just for the first time going okay i i feel awful right now yeah What do you do? And then you're like, okay, I'm really happy right now. What do I do? Oh, I, I feel, you know, uncomfortable right now. What do I do? I always had an answer. It was easy, you know, and now it's I think,
1: you know, what we started talking about about the COVID not being our responsibility, right? It's like everything's fucked and none of it's my fault, you know? So I can just sit back in the stands with everybody else and watch the dumpster fire. And I don't have to feel guilty or awkward or irresponsible that's kind of the attitude that i have to put on my own personal dumpster fire right like i know this is burning in me i didn't like the fucking thing you know <laughs> yes, and yeah so like it was lit by others early on in my childhood and i do know that it's now my responsibility but but it's not my fault you know what i mean yeah. and it has all these repercussions like i'm working on it i'm working on Damper, dampening the flames. But if they flare up from time to time, I kind of just have to step back and be like, oh, yeah, this is an old fire. It's been burning a long time. I didn't light it. I'm just going to watch it burn for a little while. And to me, that feels like mercy. Whereas before, I would feel so responsible and embarrassed and like, oh, shit, this is flaring up again. Medicate, Medicate, Medicate. And like, just push the flames down with bunches of booze and drugs. And then I could act normal for another six to eight hours. You know, That's not mercy. That's not merciful. You know what I mean? No. That's like if you're walking with an autistic kid and he's having an episode, like, shut the fuck up, act normal. You know? You wouldn't do that. No, you would take your time. You'd sit down. Okay, what are we dealing with here? You need to address the situation.
0: I'm really trying to learn to have compassion for myself. I also, I was, I had shame for so many years until I finally started to admit, Hey, yeah, I was molested. And this is, that was not my fault. You know, right. like, I was a yeah. small, small child and I had nothing to do with it, but I was so embarrassed about it that I didn't ever want to say anything. Because once I found out that that, that was really wrong, then I was like, Oh my gosh, that's embarrassing everybody. And you say growing up in the South, like, even though I had like gay friends, like in high school, mostly females at that time, but going, growing up in the South, like most of the, the, the guys that ended up, you know, coming out later on, they were closeted at that time. And like, hell yeah, that was the, for anybody to find that out, that was going to mean that I was gay and I wasn't going to be able to handle it.
1: Yeah. That was the most dangerous thing you could be in the South. It was like all, all the good old boys that, I knew in Tennessee, and it was most of the high school were good old boys. Of course, they were racist, you know, but way worse than being black was being gay, you yeah. know. And I painted my fingernails, I wore eyeliner, I wore black lipstick, I dyed my hair, you know what I mean? And the way that I reacted to uh, being molested and feeling victimized and weak as a small child was I will fight to the death now. I will fight to the death. And if anybody tries to call me out on being weak, I will just attack. I will just straight up attack. You know, even though I knew I was outnumbered and that I actually was physically weak and I was going to get my ass kicked. I like that was my response to having been victimized is like I will draw blood if it's the last thing I fucking do. I,
0: I just went to like one to two punk rock shows a week and just lived in a pit for, yeah, exactly. for the, the, for four years, like basically. I was.
1: And that's how we process that. That's how we process that mental and, and emotional pain is through physical pain in the pit. And it just makes so much more sense. And you can tend to that pain. You get home, you know what to do. You put an ice pack on it, you take an aspirin and you can treat it, you know?
0: I was, I was always a little worried about hepatitis with all like the spike scratches and b- open <laughs> wounds. But, know. you know, like like that was my only thing was I was like, I'm not even really that sexually active and I'm going to fucking end up with an STD. <laughs> you know? That's
1: hilarious. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah, it came, it came. I was a little bit later when it started. to. I was like 17 or 18 and I was like, huh, this is a lot of sweating into these open wounds. But the nice thing about that was it was kind of like a, is a group. And even though, you know, we all lived in different parts of Atlanta, most of the kids that were in the pit were that same kind of group. So if one asshole showed up and decided to be a bully, if you were kind of a part of that regular group, they weren't going to let that stand. <laughs> and, uh, and then you also just got to throw a bunch of fists and, and then you walk away and hug and yeah, sweat totally. it out and be fine with it.
1: It was very cathartic. I lived for those pits,
0: man. It was, it was kind of like fight club in a way.
1: Yeah. And especially at the, I'm sure, you know, it's like down South too, because there's such a huge populace of neo-Nazis and skinheads and shit. And the punk shows certain ones more than others would draw that, that populace out. And I, you know, starting out as a kid and I had no punk rock friends I would have to catch rides to get down to the shows and I'd show up solo, you know, at all ages shows. I'm like 13 years old by myself, just a skinny little kid. And I don't know shit about the culture. So I'm showing up to any punk rock show. I don't care. I don't realize that the fucking oysters are skinheads until I get there. And I start getting the shit kicked out of me by neo-Nazis. I'm like, Oh, fuck the oysters. I'm not going to another one of those shows, you know? (laughs) But then I show up at a fishbone show and I'm like, oh, these are my people, you know? Yeah. Uh, so trial and error.
0: Yeah. I, I had a bit of that. I mean, I did have a little group, even though my high school was kind of a, a Johnny football hero kind of high school. My core group of little punk rock friends, we had a couple of punk rock bands in the school or actually like three. And then mine, which sucked. Mine never made it out of the basement. I had like three or four over the course of high school and they were always just the worst. <laughs> Yeah, I, I
1: was in one punk band in high school and we, uh, we practiced our asses off for like a year. And then we went to Nashville to this battle of the bands at ground zero. And uh, we came in out of 36 bands. We came in dead last.
0: <laughs> Maybe I would have had a chance. So you, uh, you got out of the Vanderbilt psychological center and at that point, you went back to your mom's house and had like a tutor for a while. But then you made it out to your dad's in Colorado.
1: Yeah, so my dad was a truck driver and he just worked for himself. But he did long distance hauls and he worked mostly in the summer. So but I finished out that year at my mom's house. I was expelled from school and we had a tutor coming a couple of times a week. And I was sneaking out of the house every night with my girlfriend and doing speed and just going crazy, you know? And then my dad picked me up towards the end of that year and I just went on the road with him. And my dad's an old hippie, very renegade draft dodger. He was a hobo before I was born. So he's not an orthodox parent at all. Right. Like living on the trains, hobo. Yeah. Hopping freight trains before I was born. Uh, So when he picked me up, his way of dealing with that was like, you just got out of the psych ward. They fucked you up with all these pharmaceuticals. These guys are like corporate gangsters and they're feeding you poison. First step is get rid of this shit, you know, chuck the meds. And then he goes, and if you got to be medicating, medicate with these because these are tried and true. They've been used for 50 years with positive results. And he gave me weed and mushrooms and LSD. And then he took me down to Mexico to do a peyote ceremony with these Weechol Indians. And I can look back now as a parent myself, I look back on that with a very mixed bag, right? Like, yep. however, I fully understand why he did what he did. And given the tools that he had, it was definitely the best he could have done. You know, he did he definitely did the best he could have done. And what he saw as a parent was terrifying. Like, here's my son who's about to either spend the rest of his life behind bars or commit suicide or get killed, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you might say it's extreme, the lifeline that he threw me, but it was the only one he had, you know. And so uh, I grabbed hold and it did it did keep me alive and it did really change my perspective from that kind of nihilistic, self-deprecating, self-abusive punk rock scene. where my only mode of therapy was to go to a pit and get the shit kicked out of me to he was turning me on to his experience which he'd always kept from me he had never really told me about until this point in my life and he started telling me about all his time in the late 60s being part of the counterculture and living on hippie communes and selling mescaline and acid and stuff and riding the trains he's like dude if you're right at that doorstep where you're about to just turn the lights off on life and give up give this a shot first just renounce everything and hit the road come with me if you want to if you don't want to hit the road by yourself but go explore life there's a lot out there that you haven't seen and some of it you might be passionate about so if you're gonna die anyways if you're about to commit suicide which i was pretty suicidal at that point try this out first right yeah try some acid, try some girls, try a freight train, like, you know, and so I, I, it shifted my perception. And I started digging into all that music from the late sixties. I became convinced that I was born 30 years too late. And I was supposed to be some famous psychedelic folk singer in 1967, you know, And um, and I lived that fantasy world for, I don't know, seven or eight years.
0: I was kind of backwards to that. I went with the like Metallica Iron Maiden into the kind of 80s punk, into Violent Femmes, Grateful Dead, Grunge, Punk. My eclectic music taste is still there.
1: Yeah. The Violent Femmes was a blanket. The Violent Femmes were probably the first band that I really discovered on my own volition and that was a constant throughout and even now just the other day I spent, I had a full violent fountains day I listened to their first album why do birds sing Hollowed ground you know uh blind leading the naked and three those records are all fucking amazing
0: I was in elementary school and I got a record player and I could pick up W.R.A.S. from Athens Georgia and I heard the Violent Femmes through the college radio station in Athens, Georgia, and went out and, and, and got a cassette. That was that was my introduction to the Violent Femmes. So definitely in that early age of me figuring out my own music rather than just listening to whatever my brother listened to or, or somebody else, I, f- I found the Violent Femmes. So good. They are. So after... Your dad gives you this advice, then you kind of take it and you you go hit the road a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I traveled with him for um, a few years until I was, or a couple of years until I was seventeen, and then I went out and hit the road by myself with my girlfriend at the time, and we traveled all around. And then I got a new girlfriend who is now my wife, and we traveled all around. And then I traveled around by myself for a couple of years and ended up back in Nashville and burnt out on drugs and alcohol. I saw the shadow side of all the advice my dad gave me. He forgot to leave out why this summer of love ended and how it ended and all the downfalls, all the blind spots of the countercultures movement. He he left that out. He didn't say, but be careful of X, Y, and Z. He just said, go out. Life's an adventure. Love is free. And love is not free.
0: Mm, No, it's definitely not.
1: (laughs) It's fucking not. (laughs) No, it (laughs) is. And, but I mean, he did, in all fairness, he did say, stay away from hard drugs. Yeah. He said that'll turn the lights off, but he didn't tell me that he had ever been involved in hard drugs. So I thought it was possible to go out and navigate that journey in a way where you're only taking the positive drugs. You're only having good trips. You're only hanging out with like-minded, positive people. And it just, that was not my experience. And then when I crashed and burned, he came to Nashville and saw me. And uh, we spent a weekend. It was like three days. We didn't sleep. We were doing morphine, speed, and tequila. And at the end of it all, he was like... So you got to be careful with this shit because I actually ended up getting strung out in the late 60s, like mainlining speed. And it was the beginning of the end for me. And it's like, what the fuck? Why wouldn't you tell me that? And that's when I got sober the first time was that next day. And I got sober and stayed sober for like seven years. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I got together with my wife for the second time. We got married. We were together seven years. I was sober seven years. And then I relapsed. And that relapse lasted another seven years and shit got way darker than before. Mm. But we had a kid in that time. Ugh. And then I finally got sober again uh, five years ago.
0: Okay. Well, congratulations. Thanks. During this, this time period, you'd come back to Colorado. You had had a solo record issue, which sounded like it kind of went awry where a, a company picked you up. And kind of sold you a pot of gold and then uh, gave you a pot of copper kind of deal?
1: Yeah, it was was sort of like I was on the very tail end of those old school record label horror stories Mm -hmm. where you sign on for a three-year contract and then they just bench you and you're not allowed to record anywhere else. And you're just frozen, you know, and you're tied into this three-year contract that's not making you any money, but they were paying the rent as part of the contract but all that rent is going into an iou with interest luckily for me the whole company went belly up at the end of that contract so i didn't end up owing money but it was three years of just not being able to record oh wow and it was from 22 to 25 and so, like, as a writer, those are pretty important years,
0: you know. So were you just writing and storing it away at that point?
1: Uh, yeah, I wrote a ton of music in that time.
0: And then you put out a solo album in 2005, if that's
1: correct. Yeah, that's right when the company died, yeah.
0: And then over the next couple of years, you started the psychobilly version of the Gasoline Lollipops, Widow's Bane, shortly thereafter. Would that... That Psychobilly inception, is there anything of that band now that's in the current band other than you?
1: There's still some of that attitude in there, right? I mean, but that first inception of Gas and Lollipops was really, it was like, that was my way overdue punk rock fantasy of being, you know, for being 15 years old. I, I just had to, like, I had made a commitment to myself. It was a dream. I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really fun. And I had a lot of steam to blow off. And I blew it off in the first year or two. And then pretty soon, I started looking around and being like, Do I want to be here? Do I want to live here? Because these clubs and these people and like, it was gnarly and dirty. And uh, just the people I was hanging with and I was sober at the time. And so if you're completely clean and sober, and you're in the punk scene... Just by default, that makes you straight edge, which gives you all this connotation of being violent and being militant and vegan and all this shit, right? Yep. And I didn't really want to be a part of that club. But if I wasn't a part of that club, I wasn't a part of anybody's club. And again, I was like back in high school being the only punk rock kid getting my ass kicked by both sides, the gangsters and the rednecks. So I started kind of affiliating with the straight edge thing. But um, I was sober by means of working a spiritual program and trying to evolve myself spiritually. And so it wasn't copacetic, you know? Sure. And so at a certain time I just started pulling away from the punk scene and integrating more of my folk songs into the band. And then eventually I put down the electric guitar and picked up the acoustic.
0: What age were you when that, that happened?
1: Mm, I was probably like 28.
0: You have a dual mic setup, where you know you have the one kind of clear mic and then the distorted mic, and then I've only seen this a few other people, and then one of the people I'd seen it with was uh, Gregory Allen Isakoff Oh yeah, had done it, and then I was as I was you know doing some research, I found out that there was some connection with you guys i was just wondering how that that setup came into the mix and uh, how long you've been doing that for
1: yeah so that actually i got that idea from colonel jd wilkes of the legendary shack shakers do you know that band yeah so they're out of paducah kentucky but they moved to nashville 2000 and so and the exit in was right across the street from my apartment and they used to play there a lot so i was going in there all the time before i got sober and J.D. Wilkes is a madman. I mean, offstage, he's like one of the quietest, shyest, most introverted, mousy kind of guys. And on stage, he's like a whirling dervish. Like he's ripping his pubic hair out and blowing it <laughs> on the crowd and doing nunchucks and back handsprings and sticking his face into an open box fan and cutting his nose up, spitting blood like crazy. And he had the dual... Mike, and he also had you know seemingly split personality you know and uh, and i could relate to that and i was like that's cool i i want i want a microphone for each of my personalities too and um so back in the day when i first came back to colorado is when i met gregory alan Izakoff, and we were like we we're kind of best friends for a couple of years we just hung out all the time and uh, we trade songs and record on each other's stuff, and and it was such an interesting dynamic because he was such a folky, right? And his hero was like Iron and Wine, right? You know, and my hero was <laughs> Colonel J D. Wilkes and the legendary Shack Shakers. But we're always telling each other about the music that influenced us, and oh, you should check this guy out. He plays in this crazy tuning, you know. Greg would tell me stuff like that. And I'd try the tuning out and be like, oh yeah, that's cool. And then I'd be like, oh dude, there's this guy, Colonel JD Wilkes. He's got this extra microphone, you know, it's like for his harmonica. Cause JD is a har- really badass harmonica player. So he would play his harmonica through the green bullet, which is made for playing harmonica. But then he'd also sing through it sometimes and he'd sound like a, a trucker on a CB radio. Right. Yeah. So I was telling uh, Greg about that and He was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And he went out and found it and he he bought it. I was like, holy shit, you got one of those. He's like, yeah, man, you can get them down at Rob's Music for 100 bucks. I was like, oh, fuck. So then I went down and got one. And that's why Greg and I both use that microphone.
0: (laughs) You know, it's a very distinct sound, but very cool. And with your guys, two very different voices and even just, you know, everything about it it, it gives off such a different feel for when the two of you use it. It's just, it's a really, it's really cool. It
1: really does. Yeah. You wouldn't even recognize it. You wouldn't even recognize it as the same thing. Just because.
0: But I did actually, cause I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was seeing Gregory Allen Isakoff with my wife and I was like, he's got that same rig that Clay Rose has. So it's, it's noticeable, but at the same time different.
1: Yeah. He uses it, I think more of like as a ghost voice. You know what I mean? Like he'll bring in like this ethereal...
0: Yeah, like in caves and some of those.
1: Yeah, it's like a disembodied voice that he uses. And me, I more use it as like my demon self. It's
0: very cool though. You were obviously influenced a lot in, in punk rock and things, but then like with Gasoline, Lollipops, a lot of Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave. I, I hear a lot of Tom Waits and with uh, Widow's Bane, Gogol Burdello is that... Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, definitely Tom Wakes, Golho Bordello, and, and Leonard Cohen. For whatever reason, it's not that I have anything against him. I just never really connected with Nick Cave.
0: I just remember the first time I heard Soul Mine. I it made me think of murder ballads.
1: Of all the Nick Cave, that's the album that I that I have. Yeah, that's
0: the one I that's
1: the one yeah, I with too. PJ Harvey. Oh man, that track is so good.
0: It is. I saw Nick Cave on accident. It was Lollapalooza in '94. Oh, cool! And Nick Cave happened to be on stage, and I was like, "This guy's weird. I should, I should check him out." Yeah. Was it in this period where you were with Widows' Bane where you got back into drinking and drugs, or was it just drinking?
1: It was both, and it, uh, it happened pretty quickly. I won't say it was the Widows' Bane was sort of a last ditch effort for me not to relapse. You know, I wasn't going to any meetings, I wasn't working a program, I was just flying solo, and I was young. And then uh, my marriage hit a bump in the road. And I got really, really full of resentment. And of course, being dry drunk at that point, like that's the... First thing I think of, you know, I'm like, no, God damn it. I got too much pride. I'm not drinking over this shit, you know, and I was all, but I was also still too chicken shit to write sincere songs about it and call her out. Right. As myself. So instead I make this alter ego who's been murdered by his wife and brought back to life by the devil. And he gets to say whatever the fuck he wants to say. Right. And he's like a brass misogynistic drunk son of a bitch. So I can get drunk without drinking. I just get into character. I'd fill a flask with coffee, right? And it looked like rum and I'd drink it on stage and I'd act drunk. I'd talk like a angry drunk dude. You know, I got to say whatever I wanted with full impunity.
0: Almost not guar, but like almost, you know, just that full on character band.
1: Yeah. And then, and then whoops, then I drank, right? And I thought I was just enhancing the character by doing so. And uh, shit got dark, like real fast. And that, that band was playing a lot. And there was this one tour in particular where we went out West and I was, I, I never broke character. Like for three weeks, I was just constantly in character. I was constantly drinking.
0: In makeup as well, or just in character?
1: In makeup, everything. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like crazy. You know, I, I was full on losing my mind. Okay. And I was, you know, I was free basing a lot of cocaine and, it was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: it's, it's good that, you know, you can look back at those times in your life and then laugh about it. You know? Yeah, as long as you survival. Uh, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people don't get the opportunity to laugh. So after that, you started with gasoline lollipops with Dawn. Were you sober when you started working on Dawn?
1: Dawn, I was sober. Yeah. And then right about the end, like when we were putting out Dawn, that I relapsed death I was totally gone for and we recorded resurrection like three times but I wasn't sober and we just we couldn't get it right it was just and we just started over and it was just like this project that would never end and then I finally got sober and within like the first three months of being sober we recorded the whole thing (laughs)
0: dawn death and resurrection almost in aftermath was a foreshadowing of what it took in your life to uh, to record those three albums i know i did not mean
1: for it to be that way yeah
0: (laughs) you know it's a it's it's a little too right on you know with that sobriety i know back to darkness and then and then reviving in the sobriety and when you originally wrote that it was you were writing it as like the triple seven, right? It was the like lucky sevens. So you had it as three, uh, seven song EPs. Yeah. But then when you finally released Resurrection, it has 11 songs on it. Can you tell me what happened there that you, you decided... Yeah, fuck it. I don't <laughs> I'm done with the 7s. There was just
1: too there was just too much to say and those a lot of those songs were songs that I had written in the final days of my crash and burn and I needed to I needed to get them out. I didn't want to sit on them any longer and I didn't want to put them on a future record because I knew that they were expiring. So, I just put a, a bonus four songs on that record. And, you know, in that time of death the widow's bane recorded don't be afraid it's only death so that was put out at that same time <laughs> yeah i don't understand but i i have learned that i need to be really fucking careful about what i name my records because my life always reflects the work. i don't think it's the other way around and i mean i might be it might be a feedback loop but I usually come up with an idea for album titles and then I write the songs to fit the album titles.
0: Yeah, maybe we're in the Matrix. I don't know.
1: I don't know either. But that idea of dawn, death and resurrection came first and I was still sober. And I thought it was going to be a quick project. I thought within 18 months, we'll have all three of those released. And it took like eight years.
0: Yeah, I think I read an article back in you know, 2013 or something where you're like, yeah, we just got the first one done and death should be coming out. And I don't know whether it was, you know, the spring or whatever. And then we're going to, we're going to knock the other one out. And I was like, oh, that was, that was ambitious at the time. Totally. (laughs) By the time you finish Resurrection, do you have pretty much your core group of guys?
1: The band was totally in flux right then because the drummer on Dawn and Death was like my best friend, my brother-in-law and my my running buddy. like So when I got sober, we had a big falling out. Uh, Jeb on Fiddle, who's Gregory Allen Izikoff's violinist. Mm-hmm. He had been with me since the Psycho Billy days, but really we were always his secondary band and Greg was always his first. And then his girlfriend started singing with us. And I was just like, choosing life by way of default like I was just making no decisions it's just an open door anybody that wants to be in gasoline knowledge box can be in gasoline knowledge box I'll play anywhere you tell me that I'm playing I'm not gonna choose a gig I'm not gonna I'm not gonna choose shit and it was really because I didn't trust myself all my decisions had led me to the bottom you know so I was just letting everybody else make my decisions for me and the result was a surprisingly successful clusterfuck once I did start getting some confidence and going, okay, this is my band. I'm the band leader. What do I want it to look like? Who do I want it to be in it? And so over the next few years, I did some really uh, difficult, the most difficult house cleaning I've ever done, you know, cause this is with like deep, meaningful relationships and asking people to leave. You know, I don't feel like we really had the band that I wanted until right now, this last album is the first time it's been the band I wanted. And that is, uh, you know, that's with my, my old childhood friend, Scott Coulter playing keys. He's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. He, 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 there's a lot on that new album that the, the keys are so prominent now in the, in the band. So
1: I've known Scotty since we were five years old and, uh, and then Donnie on guitar and Kevin Matthews on drums. And he's Kevin Matthews is just, he's so steady. Like we didn't use a click track anywhere on that record.
0: When you got done recording Resurrection, you guys came out with Soul Mine really fast. Yeah, the same year. What inspired you to do an album
1: less than a year later? What Soul Mine was mostly, it was everything that was left on the cutting room floor from Dawn, Death and Resurrection. And I knew that the band I was playing with was not the band that I wanted to play with for very much longer. All those members were an integral part of those songs now. So I needed them to be on the record with those songs, but I didn't want to keep them much longer. So here comes the album.
0: Okay. That was not the answer I expected, but that that makes a lot of sense. So then moving into your uh, most recent album, All the Misery Money Can Buy, that you released September 11th. How long prior to releasing that have you guys recorded it? Because there was just a lot going on in the country at that time. Interesting date of September 11th to pick for a release date. And then also in the middle of this pandemic, you're not going to be touring.
1: This comes down to sort of my purist idealist kind of spiritual view of music and songwriting we'd written that album in about 18 months before it came out so we'd spent about 18 months writing and recording that record and so much of it is about the trump presidency right and life under the trump administration and um and capitalism and and what it looks like when it's just completely untethered Mm -hmm. and the black lives matter movement and all of it. Right. And so it was really important to me that it be released while it was still relevant. That makes sense. And it was more important. If I sat on the album, all the misery money can buy for the sake of making more money Uh, I'd be a fucking hypocrite, right?
0: Yeah. We're all hypocrites to some extent, but you know. But again,
1: (laughs) it's like how we said, how my life seems to really follow the project and reflect the project. And so I'm writing this album all about that money doesn't equal happiness and let go of the material and, and look towards the spiritual and relationships and things that are, that are actually meaningful and can bring you happiness. And that's kind of the thesis statement of the whole album. And then I'm invited to release a fucking album that cost me $17,000 out of my own pocket. That was my money. I earned a lot of that by working carpentry, swinging a hammer. Like I earned that fucking money. And I put it up myself. And then the universe says, okay, now offer it up for free. I'll make no return on your investment at all and see if you you can put your money where your mouth is, you know? And so I saw that and I fucking said, okay, that's hilarious. I'll be more careful about my next album. I'll call it uh fame and and posterity
0: <laughs> Fame, fortune, no misery, and private islands.
1: Fame, force, and, and endless blowjobs. That's what the next one's
0: going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that music video that you made for the title track, you're walking around. Uh, Denver without a mask was there any motivation behind that or or were you just showing off your face for the world so they had some connection because you you do wear a mask a couple of times I know in the video but I was just wondering if there was any statement to you not so
1: this is the crazy thing is first of all when it was filmed was like before the really before masks had become politicized There was no, there were no Trumpers. There were no Trumpers saying the fucking thing is a, is a myth. Everything was very ambiguous at that point. You know, people were saying we think it's a pretty good idea to wear masks, but we don't know.
0: It wasn't a mandate yet. Right.
1: It wasn't a mandate and it wasn't politicized. And when we had booked the two weeks prior and when we booked the, the day to film the video, George Floyd was still alive. Like, there was no riots, there was no anything, right? And George Floyd was murdered two days before the filming. And I didn't know what the fuck was going on in Denver. My whole point of the video, our whole plan was we're just going to walk on a Sunday when we thought that the streets would be empty, Right. And we're just going to walk from the deep ghetto in North Denver all the way through the high finance district, down through the shopping district into like the Beverly Hills of Denver where all the rich people have Cherry Creek. And that was it. It was going to be kind of a boring, but it's just me walking and you just see the disparity of wealth between 20 miles of any given American city. That was it. And we got way more than we fucking bargained for. And so like, yeah, I was, I was planning on showing my face and I wasn't planning on being around anybody and I didn't have a fucking mask. You know, I did find that one in the video and it was tied around the statue. So I took that, you know, that And that's what cool. you're
0: wearing at the end of the video and that onesie and it, don't put on the mask. I'd like, I had this like visceral reaction when I see that, I was like, I hope he didn't find that mask. I hope, I hope like, I was like, Clay, don't put on the mask.
1: Uh, any, anything for theatrics, you know what I mean?
0: Sure, yeah, you know, whatever, death or I, I will die dismemberment. For
1: dramatic effects.
0: This new album, you you had talked about childhood friend that's playing keys on this. the The album definitely has a different different sound than other gas pop albums, and I would say it's got definitely a a bluesier tune and a lot, maybe even some Springsteen-ish stuff in there. And the title track is very kind of Chris Isaac-y a little bit, you know, compared to what you're, you've put out before, what were some of your influences in in this album and what led you to go in this kind of slightly different direction?
1: Well, this is the first time that I've ever opened the door to co-writing. Like I've never co-written anything with anybody, but with this album, I invited the band to help write the music. And then, like I said, I invited my mom to help co-write a couple of the songs. And then my other childhood friend, Max Davies, co-wrote a couple of the songs with me as well. So it was a much more collaborative process. And it just seemed like a more cohesive idea, concept for the album. Like, this is what we're writing about. I want a song that kind of speaks to this issue and a song that speaks to this issue. And, you know, so it was more intentional rather than just like I've been writing songs for a year. Now let me sift through them and see which ones go together, which is kind of more how I've done it. You know, I mean, an overall arching thing, like
0: it's a very concept albumy.
1: Yeah. And I did it with the help of the band. So as far as influences go, it would be, the influences of my bandmates and my co-writers because they were bringing those to the table you know and and Donnie our guitar player definitely had a really solid desire to kind of mimic uh late 60s early 70s swampy soul sounds you know from muscle muscle shoals to the new orleans kind of thing
0: yeah and some of even into that kind of almond Brothers style you, that last that last track you really almost get that jam band kind of feel with the guitar yeah very cool i really enjoyed it um I I know we're we're running over just a tiny bit but I have to bring up this last part otherwise my wife will murder me. So, you have done two now full shows and and one little single that you did with Wonderbound. And so Wonderbound is a local Uh, Denver Ballet Company that kind of does modern, lyrical, interesting projects. How did you get connected to Wonderbound and how did that come about? This is,
1: again, pretty early on in my sobriety. The Gas Pops were playing a brunch gig at this crazy club called Ophelia's in Denver. Yeah. And on intermission, Don and Garrett, the directors of Wonderbound, they were sitting there watching us play and they came up to me during intermission and said, hey, uh, uh, we run a ballet company. And have you ever thought about writing like a rock opera or, you know, a musical, something like that? And I was like, yeah, actually, in fact, I've got two of them that I've been kind of working on one for Widow's Bane and then one around this uh, song of the guests in the other pops called Santa Maria and Sandman. And I for years been trying to flesh those out into full length musicals like rock operas and they were like well great we want to talk to you about these projects you know we'd love to produce them and put them on I was like you full of shit you know like Mm -hmm. I mean I'm sure you know but at gigs there's always like people coming up to you after the gig hey my brother in law runs a record company and he can fucking hook you up you know it's always like somebody going on about what they can do for you and I was like this is the most far-fetched I've ever heard you know but they said something to the effect of like basically asking me my qualifications like are you qualified to produce a full-length ballet for us and because I just thought they were so full of shit I'm like what's the harm in lying you know so I'm like yeah I'm fully prepared. I'm fully prepared and qualified for that project, you know, (laughs) like like if I thought that they were for real, I would have been like, no, you got the wrong guy. I could not possibly, that terrifies me. The idea of that terrifies me. Yeah. I was just incredulous enough to agree to it. And they gave me their card and they called me and I, I still was like, this is not for real. And it wasn't until I went to their studio in five points in Denver and I walk in and there's, it's a real studio. I mean, and there's ballet dancers, you know, dancing and actually performing. I'm like, Oh shit.
0: <laughs> what have I got myself into? <laughs>
1: yeah. I didn't prepare for this meeting at all. Like I thought I was going to walk into some dude's garage. You right. Know? And, uh, and so they start interviewing me and we start talking about me and Garrett, he's the choreographer and the director and really hit it off right away. And we had a lot in common they used to run the uh, Memphis ballet in okay. Tennessee yeah. and we're about the same age. And so we're just telling stories about being in Tennessee. And I spent a lot of time in Memphis. I loved it. And, and he's a huge Elvis and Johnny cash fan. And so we're just, I mean, we really hit it off. And so then I started getting kind of more real with him and I'm like, yo, look, I'm a punk rock kid, like one year sober off of hard drugs. I don't know anything about music theory. You might have the wrong guy. And he was like, no, He's like, the reason I want you is because you tell a good story. And he's like, that's what I want. I want a good storyteller. And he said, your music is infectious. And I want to, to choreograph to it. So I said, okay, you know, you're digging your own grave. And uh, dude, just because of the time frame, he wanted to work on the Widow's Bane musical first because they needed something for their fall Halloween season. And so we did Wicked you together and my son was a huge part in writing the story of that because he's he was like seven at the time and he's just like way in the nightmare before Christmas and everything Halloweeny And so he helped me write the story. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And then the next one we did was the Gasoline Lollipops one based on the story of Santa Maria and the Sandman. And that came out Valentine's Day of 2020, I think. Yeah, it did. Right before COVID hit.
0: Oh my gosh, that's crazy to think that was this year. My wife and I came to that and she still talks about it as being one of the coolest things she's ever been to in her life. She was a dancer growing up. My mom owned a ballet school when I was a kid. I grew up in a ballet school, not dancing, but just like I was the kid in the back building the sets and painting the sets. And uh, Oh,
1: cool. Yeah. It's so crazy because you know what? Before musician, before stand up comedian, the very first answer I ever gave to what do you want to be when you grow up? I said ballerina.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. I had a very, very brief stint in the ballet school. I took one class because my buddy, when I was like 10, was a football player. And he had heard that I don't know, one of the football players at the time, I think it was refrigerator or something, was like, oh, you need to do ballet to like, so he wanted to do ballet. And he's like, but you got to come with me. And so I was like, okay. So I went and took one ballet class. The second class, I had to go in early because I had to go with my mom and she had to teach class. Well, I went down to the Big B drugs and stole a pack of cigarettes. And then for some reason, my brother came by. I don't remember if he was dropping off my friend or what it was, but he found out that I stole cigarettes and he made me go back to steal a second pack of cigarettes. Otherwise, otherwise, he was going to tell my mom that I had stole the cigarettes. So I go back to steal the second pack and I get caught. And the Big B drugstore manager pulls me into the office and they call the police. They called my mom and they were like, well, you need to come down here. And she's like, I can't you know, teach in a class. And they were like, well, I've already called the police. So it depends on whether you get here first or they do with what happens next Uh, the guy blew smoke in my face the whole time in like the back room you know back in the this is probably 1990 or 89 or 90 something like that and so
1: that ended your ballet yeah my mom
0: did not want me around she didn't want me connected to the ballet school for a little while, (laughs) which was great for me i didn't i didn't care (laughs) but that was my stint with ballet (laughs) well I, i i loved the sandman i had always talked about doing it with my mom before she had sold her school off but um it was such a such a cool concept to see come to life so very cool thanks well thank you so much for talking with me so long and being so Absolutely. honest and uh yeah
1: thanks for having me
0: well thank you yeah thanks again for the time and uh and we'll stay all in right. touch all right all right thanks Take brother care, Mark. bye, bye. Feel very discombobulated today.
2: Do you? How so?
0: I don't know. I just feel I'm not in the right spot,
2: like emotionally or physically.
0: So today we are here to talk about Mr. Clay Rose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty heavy episode.
2: You're not gonna. You're not gonna ask me how I'm how I'm doing today.
0: So, Crystal, how are you doing today?
2: You know what? I'm conflicted.
0: What are you conflicted about?
2: I'm just, I'm having all the feels this week. We've got some great things happening, some big things happening. Did you know that we have uh, in office currently our very first female vice president of the United States?
0: Not in this office.
2: Not in this particular office, but in in office in, yes, go on. Did you know that she's also a stepmom? I did. Do you know that that's a pretty darn big deal for me? I do. It makes me super happy.
0: You're a stepmom.
2: I am. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So I'm not making you conflicted or I am.
2: No, no. The conflicted things were, I, I'm really stoked and excited about that. Yeah. I'm really disappointed about the world. And did you see the video this week of the Washington police squad car running over about 10 people? I only
0: saw the one.
2: There was a crowd of about 10 people.
0: But the one person like got really rolled over.
2: There's still protesting happening. There's still a lot of police violence happening in a lot of cities. The, the video with separate, like the crowd of people that got ran over was really messed up. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And then I listened to this episode and it was heavy. It was really, it was intense. Normally I listen to the episodes twice after listening to this episode. The first time I took a bath um, and just put on my crying playlist on Spotify And tried to have some feels.
0: And then you let another man into your bath that was not me.
2: Yes. Yeah. He's my favorite little man, so...
0: He's furry. (laughs) Yeah.
2: The dog got in the bathtub with me.
0: Yeah, Walter Walter decided to take a bath with mom, and that was sweet.
2: Yeah, he took up most of the bathtub. I ended up sitting crossways in the bath with my legs hanging out into the bathroom because he just felt like he needed more space than I did.
0: Yeah. I was trying to find a way... To bring some levity to the beginning of the facts and some of the things we're going to discuss today.
2: Walter being in the bathtub seems like the only way to make that happen.
0: That pretty much was it because I'm just going to go straight into it. Five points. Okay. So so Clay says multiple times where he talks about being in five points in the uh, juvenile psychiatric facility. And when he said five points, I pictured arms, arms. Legs and head.
2: Like five point constraints?
0: Yes. So then uh, I started looking it up. And when I did that, I, I found that there was a lot where it just said four point, which is arms and legs. And then they say there's another restraint that they use, which is a chemical restraint, which is a sedative. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I was not thinking about this correctly. It's, you know, arms and legs and a sedative. I just wanted to confirm, so I texted Clay, and I asked him, and he said, arms, legs, and head.
2: Good Lord. I, I guess I thought when he was talking about five points, I thought that was the name of the facility, but the facility was like Vanderbilt.
0: So five-point restraints is not four points plus the chemical restraint. It is actually head, legs, and arms. So some people now deem it cruel and inhumane because it can leave long lasting psychological effects. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think I even said, well, that's barbaric. That feeling of being like tied down and not being able to do anything. So now if they have to go to the lengths of strapping somebody down, it's like for a short as time as possible, only in the amount of time that they're potentially dangerous to themselves or somebody else. And then as soon as they can feel like they have some safety, they release them.
2: You know, this builds an argument in my mind for why humans should not be allowed to recreate.
0: Uh, Yeah. We're not going to get into that today.
2: Okay. Yeah. We're the worst animals.
0: So everything that I've read now that it seems like these types of facilities are becoming more humane and it's like, like I said, with restraints and stuff. So he said benzos, which is short for benzodiazepines, which are tranquilizers. And they are the most commonly prescribed drug in the U S. But what they do is they work to sedate you by raising the level of the inhibitory neurotransmitters. So it's called, um, GABA and it is gamma amniobutyric acid neurotransmitters are chemical messengers that like send stuff throughout the brain. And then GABA is considered an inhibitory neurotransmitter (laughs) because it actually blocks certain signals and then it, it decreases nervous system activity. So that is what benzos are. And those are like the main ones like lorazepam, clonazepam, diazepam, alprazolam.
2: Um, Let's go back to episode two where Crystal's never done drugs.
0: Xanax, Valium, Klonopin.
2: You may not have had this moment. When you were listening to him talk about this, did you flashback to the Queen's Gambit?
0: (laughs) You know what? I have it in my notes. Yes. Queen's Gambit. Yeah. 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 No. So when he was talking about.
2: I thought that.
0: I did think about that. Yeah, because in the Queen's Gambit when when she is a kid and he talks about starting to when half he became swallow pills and becoming an addict, you know, based off on of this thing.
2: Drug addict.
0: And she hides the she hides the pills in Queen's Gambit.
2: Which becomes an addiction right. behavior the rest of her life.
0: And then I also kept picturing the little girl from Amelie, but I don't think it has anything to do with this. I think...
2: I I genuinely thought you were going to go Matilda there for a second, and I'm not sure why I thought that. She
0: kind of had this... I think they all have that little cropped bangs, short bob.
2: So nothing to do with living in a child's home, just children's home. No.
0: Okay. Here's something more positive. Clay's mom, Donna Farrar, wrote a song that Willie Nelson recorded.
2: Which I think is amazing because I love me some Willie.
0: And you probably know this song... The last thing I needed, the first thing in the morning, it's, it's on, um, you were always on my mind. So in 1982, always on my mind came out Mm -hmm. and that was one of my father's and mother's favorite albums. So I listened to that album a lot.
2: Yeah.
0: But it says the last thing I needed, the first thing in the morning was to have you walk out on me. And then Chris Stapleton. Did his version of it in two thousand and seventeen. Oh, really? Mm-hmm.
2: I'll have to check that out.
0: The suicidal tendencies. They were a hardcore punk band in the eighties. I mean, and then into the nineties, but they were banned from Southern California and minus like gang colors. They kind of look like a SoCal gang from like the eighties or nineties, like bandanas like down to the brim of the eye. Oh. They were like the beginning of like the flat caps and the flat caps flipped up on the front. Like My
2: God, did that start that early?
0: Yeah. And so like the one of the guys even had a suicidal tendencies hat Mm -hmm. and the suicidal tendencies was written on the bill. So he'd flip up the bill and the suicidal tendencies was on the bottom. And they were like basketball jerseys, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Have to confess through that entire section, you will find this not surprising at all. I did not recognize a single band name that you guys spouted off.
0: The thing about Suicidal Tendencies was they were actually one of the first punk bands I heard because they would, they had music videos. So they were on MTV and it might've been on Headbangers Ball. So Clay said that minor, minor patients could only be held so long by a state before they had to be moved. I couldn't find any literature to confirm or, deny how long a child could stay in a medical facility um, before they were moved. Like I looked into it a lot. And if what I talked about previously was not dark enough for you, I'm going to talk about child sexual abuse statistics.
2: Okay. let's, Let's buckle in.
0: Buckle in. I'm going to get through this one little part because I have some own personal things that I want to say. So I kind of want to barrel through these statistics Okay. And then I'm going to say something and then you can comment. Okay. About 1 in 10 children will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. About 1 in 7 girls and 1 in 25 boys. Child sexual abuse decreased by roughly 47% from 1993 to 2005. That's a good, but less than 40% of those who are molested before 12 report it. Mm-hmm. Assuming
2: Right. Immediately when you said that statistic, I'm like, it just went under report.
0: So substance abuse problems, um, by male adult CSA victims are 2.6 times more likely to report substance abuse problems, 65 for the CSA compared to 25% for the general population. Mm -hmm. Female victims are three times more likely at 40.5% for CSA compared to 14% for general population. So males are just more likely to report that they have abuse issues. They may have more abuse issues and then they also may be more willing to report that they have abuse issues. You know, we don't
2: know. That is interesting to me because men are so generally categorized as being afraid to ask for help. But I wonder if there is a, uh,
0: I would guess it's probably related to legal and to that
2: makes medical. Sense. Right. situations. Yep, okay.
0: Where men end up at the hospital and um and then in legal situations where they're arrested or whatever.
2: Women are also better at hiding shit.
0: <clears throat> so, <laughs> adults who are sexually abused are twice as likely to report attempted suicide, mm-hmm. and more with the reporting. Among male survivors, 70% seek psychological treatment for issues such as a substance abuse, suicidal thoughts, and attempted suicide. So I just wanted to say that like admitting to my own circumstances in this episode was, was not a minor thing, you know, and just over a year ago I told you for the first time, which was the first person I had told in my life since the incidents took place that I recall, you know, I, uh,
2: and this was after five years together.
0: After five years, I told you, yeah, um, but I'd never told my parents, right uh, I had never told my best friends growing up. I hadn't told anybody, but I also you know i say I say I don't remember telling because I did have a lot of alcohol and drugs in my life, and, <laughs> and uh I may have told somebody when I didn't remember, but i I quit using drugs about fifteen years ago, really, and then I quit altogether twelve years ago. But alcohol was a constant. And because it was legal, I didn't think it was a problem. But eventually, it kind of took over my life and really worsened during the course of our relationship, even though we mm-hmm. were in a fairly good relationship. But I just want to say to people sometimes just admitting it does help it, does make it better. The first time I, I said it out loud, I didn't explode, I didn't disappear. The police didn't come and get me.
2: I didn't stop loving you.
0: You didn't stop loving me. So it really, I mean, it's been helpful. And now I'm getting to where I can say it more and more. And I don't feel the shame that I felt before. And I don't, I don't feel like I did anything wrong anymore. And, and that's better. And so. I know there's other, a lot of other people out in the world that are, are hiding these things because they're fear of what other people will think or how other people will act. And, you know, I've, I've only had people treat me in like the nicest way. And, you know, they don't treat me like I'm a leper or any of the things that I thought would happen. People just have compassion. Just like if your friend told you that that's, you know, most of us forget that people are going to treat us the way that we treat other people. And we, uh, we forget as a species sometimes to have self-compassion and, and look at things from, from an objective point of view. So it's definitely helped me to have self-compassion, self-care, self-improvement. And there's, you know, with addiction as well, um, I'm getting to where I'm willing to admit that. There's groups and people you can talk to and just think getting out there and talking to people, whether it's with a therapist or friends or family, just 12-step programs. They're all helpful.
2: If you shine a light in a corner, it's not dark there anymore. I've heard that saying. A couple of times. It's
0: probably... On an Instagram placard.
2: I don't think I've ever put it on Instagram before. No,
0: no. I wouldn't say that you did. I'm just saying like one of those it little might have like, somewhere. live, laugh, love.
2: Mm, mm. I am do, I am putting that on a doily. A doily. I am <laughs> putting that shit on a doily. You know what? I thought um, Clay said it really beautifully. Uh, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility to care of it to take care of yourself. And he also called, he also referred over and over to mercy, Mm -hmm. like giving yourself mercy. And that is, that is a word so much more deep than just compassion for yourself. Um, When you think of mercy, you think of someone just in so much wretched pain, potentially on their deathbed. And just mercy is the act of, of giving them relief from that horrendous, horrendous pain. And uh, there were moments in that in that last year, as you were dealing with this, as you were working through it, but also in the five years before, I knew what the fuck was going on. Um, where you were in such wretched pain—that is all.
1: <laughs> all right.
0: <laughs> so, self-compassion, everybody. I'm gonna laugh. Through everything like I do. No, it, it really doesn't get better from here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping it did and then I just.
2: We're, we're just going to trudge through the mud and then just keep the fuck on going.
0: I mean, we get to a better. I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff here. Um, So he mentions the Columbine and the school shootings. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like my real first introduction to the idea of any kind of like. Violence like that at school. I know in Decatur, there would be like shootings at school, but it was like fights over like drug deals and stuff like that. But the first time I had thought about it, anything like somebody doing anything bad at school was Pearl Jam's Jeremy. Jeremy spoke in class today.
2: Yeah, I don't remember what that song's about.
0: Well, the music video was this kid and he goes to the class, and then he, the idea is that he, Kills himself in front of the class. Well, it was based off of Jeremy Dell, who was a sophomore in Texas. Uh I I think it was Dallas area. But this kid was 15 and he was late for school, late to class. His teacher tells him to go to the front office to get like a note, tardy note. Instead, he goes home, he comes back to the class and he says something like, Miss, I got what I was really looking for or I went and got what I was really... He said something like that and then he put a gun in his mouth and shot himself in front of the entire class. This was in 1991 and then that was that was what Eddie Vedder wrote Jeremy about. um, Which wasn't, he didn't, you know kill anybody else he didn't hurt anybody else but he murdered himself in front of his class Um, <clears throat> but then Columbine happened in 1999 and I was a freshman in college and you would have been still a senior I was a senior that year okay yeah so that I just remember being like I'm so glad I'm out of high school like elementary school anything like I just was glad to be out of the public schools but then there was a college shooting you know not too far after that
2: in in you and Clay's sort of thoughts on this were so similar. Just the, uh, yeah, it didn't surprise me that it happened. And when Columbine happened, it still was not even fathomable. It's still, to this day, I can't imagine being, like what kids go through now of like doing active shooter drills and that kind of thing. I can't picture how that must feel for them
0: Mm -hmm. these kids um they were two seniors Mm -hmm. they murdered 12 students one teacher there was like 26 people that got injured but 21 were by gunshots that weren't fatal they also had two bombs that they had failed to detonate Mm -hmm. and then they had also set out two bombs outside of the school to like distract or something, distract and
2: then, police officers. And then
0: one of them had gone off, but hadn't gone off fully. And then the other one didn't. So could have been much worse, but they had planned for roughly a year. And their goal or target was to have the worst massacre in US history, which at the time was, I mean, for as far as like, I guess, like a terrorist attack or, um, and that's over, uh, at the time was the Oklahoma City bombing.
2: Oh yeah, because this would have happened before nine <sighs> eleven.
0: Okay, so the whole point of us talking about the Columbine killers was the psychiatric drugs, because right. Clay had yes. mentioned that that they he were wasn't on, sure if they were on drugs. But. He said he knew they were on something. He didn't know what they were on, and blah blah blah. Um, but one of the shooters had been on Zoloft. I know his name. I'm not saying their names. I don't sure. like to give people that kind of credit. But one of the shooters had been on Zoloft. He was obsessed with homicidal and suicidal thoughts.
2: Not the band, the actual thoughts.
0: Suicidal tendencies. Oh. He right. had suicidal tendencies.
2: I see. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Up but to So
0: they changed him off of Zoloft and put him on Lovix, which I'm not very familiar with, but it's supposedly like switching to Pepsi from Coke. So... Uh, I don't know what kind of monster would do that.
2: I was going to say, it sounds like an upgrade.
0: I was going to say it must not be from Atlanta. That's for sure. <laughs> um, So they switched him from Pepsi to Coke. And then the other shooter was said to be on psychiatric drugs, but his files were sealed. So uh, nobody knows exactly what he was on.
2: Had either of them been institutionalized?
0: No, it didn't sound like it, but they had been this, at least one of them had been saying, uh, a psychologist.
2: Okay.
0: But I found something that was horrific and interesting. Uh, I found a list of 13 school massacres over about a decade, uh, from the late nineties to the late up to tens or the aughts. You call it double aughts, or is it just odds?
2: I don't know. It's just a thing I heard. And okay.
0: Um, but the up to tens early two thousands. Uh, so these, school shootings including the one at the university um, was one of those but 54 deaths 105 wounded all of which the shooters were on psychiatric drugs now I'm going to just throw in correlation does not mean causation, causation. you know yes. in this situation too because you think that somebody that's going to commit like a an act like this they're probably not doing well mentally did they take the drugs after? And it had absolutely nothing to do with the drugs. But um, it is—it would be interesting to kind of see. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Hey,
2: never saw it. Shocker! I know.
0: Well, I was going to say that you know we're out of the dark stuff, but one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> no, we're is not, not. Is, is not a hundred percent. Yeah, the happiest movie in the world. I mean, it, it does have a lot of moments, but. I,
2: I've seen the, uh, poster for the movie and I will tell you based off of that alone, it doesn't seem that sunshine and unicorns. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, I don't know if
0: he's got on the, he's got on like the, like, um, little knit cap and he's kind of like smiling, looking up,
2: you know, him smiling always sort of looks like a dude who's had a frontal lobotomy. Wait, does that happen in that movie? Do they give him a lobotomy?
0: Not a lobotomy. ECT. But it's like, ECT can be good. Actually, I'm doing an episode with a neurologist soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, maybe next week. (sighs) But anyway, One One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was a novel written by Ken Kesey in 1962. And it was made into a play and then a movie. Um, But it was produced by Michael Douglas. Sorry, Bubba, and uh, I just kicked my dog in the head. Um, starring Jack Nicholson, who plays Mac Murphy, and Estelle Fletcher, who played Nurse Ratchet, and you know that show Ratchet, yeah. is with Sarah Paulson, is based off that character. Okay, so Nicholson won the best actor in a lead role, and and Estelle Fletcher won the best actress in a lead role. It also won best picture, best director. And best screenplay. And it was the first time since like 1938 that that had happened where all five of those went to one movie.
2: Of all the really crummy movies you've made me watch over time, how did this one not?
0: I mean, I've watched it since we've been together. So I guess I watched it one day without you. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those. It's in my DVD collection. We can watch it. Mm -hmm. Not tonight. And I can't remember if I read the book first or saw the movie. But they're they're both really good, and then Michael Douglas produced it.
2: The actor Michael Douglas?
0: Yeah, but he's also a producer. But I didn't realize that. Yeah, so Kirk Douglas, his father, had bought the rights to the novel originally because he played the re, um, he played the lead role Mac Murphy in the Broadway play in the early sixties. Oh. And then after he did the Broadway play, he bought the rights to the book. He tried to get it made into a movie, did not succeed. Michael Douglas succeeded and then um, got all those great people involved in it. One thing that was kind of cool was it was the debut for Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, and Brad Dourif.
2: I don't know who Brad Dourif is. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? I did. I've watched 17 movies with this guy in it, haven't I?
0: Oh, I'm sure. But he's a character actor. So, okay. yeah, you wouldn't okay. necessarily know, but he's the voice of Chucky.
2: Oh, really? Yet another movie from our childhood that I never watched.
0: okay. Because I was going to say at the beginning of the first Chucky, like okay. you actually see who the murderer is, that the his soul goes into the doll. And so you see, it is him. Oh, okay. He is the actor, but then he is also the voice of Chucky. And he did... I think he voiced Chucky in like five movies or something, but he was in a bunch of different like horror movies and sci-fi movies and some comedy, but he's got like crazy eyes. Like he's definitely like one of those guys. When you see him, you'd be like, Oh yeah, that guy with the crazy, you know, he's got like a, he's got a look that he does. Okay. Um, but you know who Christopher Lloyd is
2: back to the future. Yes. Awesome. Oh my God. I got one.
0: And who framed Roger Rabbit?
2: totally don't remember him in that movie. He's the
0: judge. He's the scary judge.
2: Don't remember a judge. I remember there was a cartoon and a bunny.
0: The bunny was a the cartoon. The bunny was
2: a cartoon. You're right.
0: And then Danny DeVito. Was in that too? It was the first one I mentioned. It was his first oh, movie. Oh, Danny DeVito.
2: Okay. All right, 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 he
0: right. wasn't in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That was.
2: I thought that's what you're saying.
0: No, that was Bob Haskins. Um, He's got a really thick English accent in real life, but he plays like a great American accent back in the day. No
2: idea. Danny DeVito. Always sunny. Got it done
0: oh another one did you watch deadwood on or hbo uh
2: wasn't deadwood the thing that you made me watch when we start started dating i was watching it yeah it was like a western yeah like a train series
0: no that's hell on wheels oh
2: damn it nope i don't think i watched Deadwood. okay
0: uh brad duroff was the um he was the doctor okay in town. one of the, I mean, I feel like this has come up in a couple of different things, but nihilist, he said nihilist, um, nihilism as a noun is the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. The nihilistic philosophy is extreme skepticism, maintaining that nothing in the world has real existence.
2: You got mad at me once and accused me of being a nihilist. Yes, I did. Yeah, you did. That happened. (sighs) I was just having a bad day. Maybe you should not be an asshole.
0: I try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 really hard with all of the things that my brain says to me after other people speak to not be an asshole, so just understand that I'm way worse than you know. Like the things that come out of my mouth is is only half of what I think.
2: I don't know if you're helping. No. I'm definitely <laughs> no, 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 no. You're not
0: helping. So Colonel J D Wilkes um, is this singer in our when he was talking about the dual mics and where he got the, yeah. the Green Hornet from. Yep. Um, Green Bullet. Sorry, not Hornet. Uh, but he was the singer and harmonica player of the legendary Shack Shakers. And so I I wish that I wasn't so drunk because I definitely saw the legendary Shack Shakers. <laughs> like open up for Reverend Horton heat back in the day. I can't remember, but they were this like rockabilly psychobilly, country blues and Southern Gothic, I guess this was their, their style. But JD Wilkes, he was always connected to like punk rock, like, mm-hmm. you know, Clay was saying, but he did not actually like, he wasn't into punk. He was more into like vaudeville and like putting on a show. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, that was where his thing was. He, plays a harmonica and he also plays a claw hammer banjo.
2: Ooh.
0: Yeah, he's good. But he has recorded harmonica on albums with Merle Haggard, Sturgill Simpson, John Carter Cash, Mike Patton, and Hank Williams. So, did you know that John Carter Cash was Johnny Cash's only son with June Cash?
2: I didn't know who John Carter John Carter Cash was until this very moment.
0: Okay. You know who Mike Patton is, right?
2: I know who Patton Oswald is.
0: Mike Patton was the lead singer for Faith No More and Mr. Bungle. And
2: no one can see me rolling my eyes at you right now. Sometimes the music references I'm not very good at because my main music consumption as a younger person was.
0: Add it up, add it up. Don't. don't that was violent films.
2: Yell at me like that.
0: Why can't I get just one kiss? Why can't I get
2: just one kiss? Van Morrison and Brooks and Dunn was pretty much my entire music consumption as a small person.
0: So so anyway, he says J.D. Wilkes <laughs> is on stage spinning like a whirling dervish. And I and when is he's, that a
2: breed of bird? It's not. OK. Uh,
0: <laughs> but I I had forgotten what a whirling dervish is. I had to look it up. Sometimes I look up things that I feel like the audience might not know and that it might just be something that I know about. But this was one of those things where I'm like, what is a whirling dervish? And then it's the medlevis are also known as the whirling dervishes due to their famous practicing of whirling as a form of dicker, which is the Arabic word for remembrance of God or Allah so they're like they're Sufis but they give up all their belongings and so the dervish is a common term for an initiate of the Sufi path. So whirling is part of the formal Sema ceremony. Participants are properly known as Simazans and they they wear big hats, big funny hats and like these dresses and then they just like spin around. Do you know what I'm talking about now? No. If you see them and it's like a meditation kind of thing where they just like spin for long periods of time and they just spin in circles and they have, do you remember when we saw that, um, that Ukrainian band, Daka Braka
2: in lions? Yes. That is weird that I knew exactly what you're talking about. Cause that was not a good descriptor.
0: The Ukrainian band that we saw, what would you describe them? The
2: fact that you even think I like would remember that particular band have you you've gone to concerts with me before, right?
0: So anyway, Daka Braka is that Ukrainian band and they have those big hats, but the the ones for whirling dervishes, they kind of have big hats like that and almost similar looking like dressy like the the Daka Braka has like the furry hats, but these are not furry. But they have these like dress kind of like they almost look like um the soldiers from the Wizard of
2: Oz. Oh dear.
0: The Tin Man and the Scarecrow dress up like them and they like have to do the thing and then they. Right, right. Not the monkeys.
2: No, no, I know not. Well, didn't they turn into monkeys? No. They're not the ones that turn into flying monkeys.
0: Yeah, the monkeys are different. <laughs> so he said he spun, JD, spun around like a whirling dervish. That's all I have for Clay.
2: Can we talk about Wonderbound now? Yep. Holy buckets. Holy buckets. Never seen anything before this, like this in my entire life.
0: Danny was with us, right?
2: Danny was with us. And that poor child, for one, it's weird to see something like that. It's a lot different than any ballet that I had ever gone. The only thing I ever saw in terms of going to an actual ballet as a young person was going to the Nutcracker, which has a story. It's got costumes. It's, but it's fairly easy to understand as a young person. And this ballet, even though it was music that she was somewhat familiar with, she knew. I mean, she'd heard gasoline lollipops in the car before. I think the concepts. Like, I remember looking at you and thinking to myself, "Did we make a good choice?" Like,
0: oh yeah, are I we mean, the bad first,
2: adults taking a child to this?
0: The first scene where um, there's like
2: both men lost their wives to child birth in the first five minutes of the ballet yeah and it was
0: and then there was some brothels
2: there it was painful to watch like i was in tears in the first five minutes of this ballet but it was powerful it
0: was powerful it was
2: it was incredible it was mind-blowing and so inspiring all right well i love you good
0: and I hope everybody enjoyed this week and next week is going to be a lot more lighthearted. So if you need a, need a little break, don't worry. It's coming and so many good guests coming up in the, here in the next few weeks. It's pretty exciting. So.
2: Go take a bath with your dog. It'll make you feel better.
0: Take a bath with your dog. I, as long as it's consensual.
2: Oof. Yeah. There's that.
0: Yeah. All right, everybody. Uh, Love you all. And uh, just remember, kid, we're all in this together.